When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. By by disrupting the national anthem, it was just to bring to light the ways that, you know, there there is this tension between what we say we are and what we are and what we say we do and and how things actually play out in reality. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we talk to the person who was the first athlete to protest for black lives and against police violence during the national anthem. It wasn't Colin Kaepernick. It in fact happened two years before Kaepernick took that knee. It was Knox College basketball player Ariana Smith. We catch up with her today. Find out what's been going on with her these last six years and whether she feels any sense a vindication about what's happening. Uh, also, I've got some choice words about the state of college football and more. But first, Ariana Smith. So, uh, Ariana, just first and foremost, walk us through what happened in 2014 when you were playing for Knox College, what you did and why you did it. Yeah, definitely. So... You know, the reason why I did what I did was because I felt the the urgency to address uh, some of the just egregious cases of ignoring the tragedy of the killing of Michael Brown. Um, so actually, our basketball team went to play in Clayton, Missouri where the city chose not to indict the officer who killed uh, Michael Brown. It's one thing to have a tragedy happen or to have someone go berserk or, or rather I should just say, you know, it's one thing to have someone commit an extrajudicial killing, but then it's an entirely different thing for the city or the people in that city to then say, we're okay with this and we accept this as just a natural consequence. That was unacceptable. So um, when I found out that we were going to Clayton, I, you know, confirmed that that wasn't, because I I had heard the name of Clayton, Missouri, but I I wasn't exactly sure if that, I was was almost, you know, like what are the odds that we would be going to this city at this particular time that our roster that was set up weeks, months in advance would just happen to be at this place at this time. And so in a lot of ways, you know, I've never said this before, but I don't know, some some alignment of 
a fate must have put me in that position at that time to step up and say what needed to be said and do what needed to be done. So um, essentially what I did was um, a on-court demonstration of the way that Black people have experienced violence and the, the process of transformation that would come based on experiencing this violence and the ignoring of the pain and experiencing trauma and having it essentially accepted by the wider, the wider society. Mm -hmm. Um, so I wanted to do something that would draw attention to that in a way that was symbolic. Yes, but also very, um, disruptive to the status quo Mm -hmm. and to the sense of complacency that people had had at that time to accept these murders. Because even before then, Trayvon Martin had been killed, uh, you know, by another police officer. And, you know, it was, it was very much widely accepted that, oh, he shouldn't have had the gun. And people made so many excuses as to why, it was right for him to be killed. And so I wanted to upset those attitudes about accepting black death as the norm. And so what did you do? Yeah. So on that day, on November 29th, I went 2014, I went and, you know, I, during the national anthem, it's customary. It's a, it's a customary that, in sports, before the game begins, the the national anthem is played. And so, as a matter of fact, there was like a live singer. And this is, this is some of the details of why I say that, you know, it was very um, significant in a lot of ways. You know, it was very um, – anyway, so uh, during the playing of the national anthem, the, the live singing of the national anthem, uh, I removed my jersey, uh, my my warm up jersey, and I walked out onto the court and stood before the the American flag, and I had my hands in a uh, the hands up don't shoot gesture, which was very common at that time. You know, people were saying hands up don't shoot, and so I I walked to the flag in that gesture. Um, and I, I got to my knees in a, in a position of complete surrender, essentially. Um, and so with that, I was demonstrating that, you know, black people have been in a position of subservience in a position of subjugation in a position of complete, uh, a lower position, um, for the entirety of our existence on this continent. And so, uh, you know, once the song ended, I fell to the ground and, you know, that symbolized the impact of the gunshot and the impact of racism, you know, just the, the blunt trauma, the physical trauma, um, as well as emotional and spiritual and et cetera, et cetera. But of the trauma that's experienced, I laid on the ground for four and a half minutes 
to symbolize the four and a half hours that Michael Brown laid in his body laid in the streets of Ferguson, Missouri. Mm. And, you know, during that time, I was just thinking about, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, of course I was nervous a little bit, but, um, you know, more, more than anything, I just felt surrounded by my community, by my ancestors, by, you know, the historical figures who had come before me for surrounded by all the people who we have lost due to police brutality. You know, I just felt very surrounded in that moment, um, very much held, you know. And so um, I just I just let my mind go there. It was a very transcendent moment, I would say. And. You know, after after the four and a half minutes, I stood up in a position of power. Um, you know, at the time I called it the Black Power Salute. Um, and others have noticed that, you know, in, in other contexts, it would be the human rights salute. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I stood in that pose for a moment and then I simply walked out of the gym with my back to the American flag. Wow. Uh, why um, you were the first to do this uh, in this era? Of course, people did mm-hmm. it past uh, John Carlos, Tommy Smith in 68, most famously. Why did you choose right. them as your protest space? Yeah, you know, I think just that, you know, so often we have a blind loyalty to a blind nationalism in our country, you know, that says that we are Americans and we are exceptional and that ignores the ways that in many ways, America is not exceptional. You know, it, it, it is not this beacon that people have made it out to be. And that has been repeated throughout our history. Those shorthands that, you know, the American way is the best or that, you know, so essentially by by disrupting the national anthem, it was just to bring to light the ways that, you know, there there is this tension between what we say we are and what we are and what we say we do and and how things actually play out in reality. Rather who we want to be and, and how things actually play out in reality. So mm. that See. that really drove my motivation. Now I got you. So it's that was 2014. Um, what what has life been like since then for you? Yeah. So I mean, in the aftermath and everything, um, I really wanted to have conversations with people that would empower them to understand what their position was in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, in the conversation, but also in our society, you know. So. Um, uh, a reconsideration of of how we each contribute to or are affected by um, systems of racism and sexism and, uh, you know, all the isms. And so, uh, you know, I wanted to um, take time to really engage in those conversations, but at the same time, it was very 
it was a very emotionally charged time. Um, and so what I've learned is that there has to be a balance between the fight and the rest. Um, and so for a period of time, I was, I was definitely in a resistance mode. And I think that even in taking time to restore myself, um, that I still learned a lot. So in sports, you know, I love lifting weights, right? And so the muscle is not built as you lift the weight. The muscle is built as the muscle is broken down and then you rest and allow it to rejuvenate and restore itself. And that's how you build the muscle. And so I say that to say that, you know, taking a period to not disconnect, but just step back a little bit and let other people lead the way um, was an important step for me in order to be able to come into the conversation with my full self. Nice. Nice. So you're you're doing this process of self-care and recharging and and I'm sure reading and, and, and doing all of that. What was your Absolutely. reaction when you saw the movement explode this summer following the police murder of George Floyd? Yeah, that was, um, you know, a lot of people have been saying that it was an inevitable based on having this triple pandemic at the time or right now. So, um, you know, an underlying condition being racism, which has always been pervasive, but when you add on top of that, people losing their jobs due to um, the shift in the economy, and you add on to that um, the inability to really move about and to convene with other people in those ways, um, you know, essentially people, uh, you know, all eyes were on the news, all eyes were looking at what what is coming next and what where do we go from here and so when people saw um heard about the killing of george floyd i think that just reignited that uh energy that we need to be addressing this and you know this th- things must change mm. what about um what was your reaction when you saw this absolute explosion of athletes speaking out about racism and police violence, entire teams taking a knee during the anthem. I guess I mm-hmm. wanted to ask you if you felt any sense of, of vindication for what you did. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely am glad that I did what I did, um, you know, and I'm so happy that other athletes are using their platform to speak out and speak up Um, because so often, you know, we're just told to play the sport, move on. Don't think about where you're going, get your head in the game and not so much on the outside world. Um, But in, in, in this case, and in in many cases, really, we do have to be attuned to both, Um, both the, the, the craft of the game, but also the wider context of the world that we live in and the world that we play in. Absolutely. Mm. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm just really thrilled that um, coaches have been more supportive. I'm really thrilled that uh, 
the administrators and the team leaders have been uh, more supportive, even if for uh, reasons that might not necessarily, I mean, you, I, I don't want to assume people's motives or anything like that, but I think it's a great opportunity when we're able to start the discussion and people have criticized and said, Oh, it's just t-shirts and it's just symbolic and they aren't really doing anything. Well, maybe, and maybe not, you know, sports is a, is an arena of optics. Um, and so when you have these athletes going out and participating in this way, it, it says volumes, especially when it's a collective effort among the entire team. Um, that means that that team had to have a conversation about what's going on and people are stepping into that conversation authentically. And there are people who are going to be pushing the conversation when you broach the topic. So um, that, that gives me hope. Yeah. And that could also cause people to change. You never know who's getting affected. Right this stuff by the optics that you describe mm-hmm. and that that's such an important that's such an important point um does, does do you get ever concerned at all that uh like when you see like the way i don't know if you've been watching any WNBA or nba action like black lives matter mm-hmm. written on the court and um and and the players like you mentioned wearing the shirts and having the slogans mm-hmm. on the back of the uniform do you get concerned ever that it's um, overly, shall we say, performative or it's just like a brand of woke marketing? Or do you think that, um, you know, I, I guess I just wanted to throw that to you about what's your thoughts when you see such all, all of the, the branding of racial justice and, um, and social justice on these games? Right. Yeah, yeah. And that, that definitely is a concern. I would say it's up to us who truly believe in what that message is, you know, that Black Lives Matter, that we push the conversation and push for more than just the optic of it, but to say, okay, but how are you divesting from racist institutions, for example? You know, how are you funding Black futures? How are you, you know, asking those questions? Um, and and not just merely accepting the first display as indicator of anything other than their willingness to participate in this wider movement that is very powerful. I think it you know the fact that the the WNBA the NBA are supporting their players in Black Lives Matter you know means that they understand the power of this moment and of this movement. And so that means that we're forced to contend with. And so we have to really, really push the conversation and push the action after that conversation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Is there anybody in particular, like at this intersection of sports and politics, who's stepped forward or who said something that you've identified with or that you have, have grown to admire? Uh, you know, I always love to look back in history, um, and, you know, just acknowledging the people who have come before me, you know, so again, with 
Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and Harry Edwards. You know, the fact that he was the one who um, orchestrated the 1968 Olympic uh, human rights campaign. Um, that is something that really, you know, I, I see my role in this as a, in a lot of ways as a person who catalyzes, but, um, you know, I think that I really admire, um, the ability to, to organize to organize people and to uh, bring together a collective of people. I think if anything, that was the one part that I wish I could have done differently um, is to have more people participate um, in that demonstration. But again, you know, no regrets or anything, but just at the time, it, it just so happened that we just weren't at that point yet where people were willing to collectively take action. But I think that um, the value of collective action um, is more potent, more powerful, more sustainable than the action of any one individual. So I think that's what Harry Edwards understood and what I'm trying to um, incorporate as I'm catalyzing and strategizing and, you know, <laughs> doing what I do, um, understanding that the people who I work with really do, really do make or break the situation in a lot of ways. So what's next for Ariana Smith? Yeah, what's next is that, you know, I'm going to continue to you know, do the, do the restorative work, continue to listen to people who know much more than I do, you know, continue to interrogate my own participation in these systems and, you know, really just trying to embody and live out and do and practice the ideals that I have um, about what our society should be, you know, more fair, more equitable, um, providing the proper care and attention to the, the legacies of anti-Blackness in our country, mm -hmm. um, and being a advocate and being someone who really just stands in solidarity. You know, I, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm a person who is definitely personally affected by these systems every day. We all are. And so when I have the opportunity, that's how I got into this work. You know, I had the opportunity to hear people's stories and to hear the ways that they have been personally impacted by different policies and structures. And so I told myself that I can't just listen to this and, and know people's pain and not do anything about it. So that's, that is still how I enter the conversation with uh, orientation toward centering those who have been most impacted mm -hmm. um, and really, and really listening to them, you know? Fantastic. Well, 
Ariana, so definitely um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on the podcast. It was great to catch up with you. Of course. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate all of our conversation. And I really hope your voice gets out there more. I know there's been some media swimming around you. I hope you take the opportunity to tell your story. Thank you. We'll be back right after this with a message from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the state of college football. Okay, look, Justin Fields is one of the great talents in college football. The Ohio State quarterback was supposed to be a leading contender for the Heisman Trophy this season, and the Buckeyes, in turn, were poised to win a national championship. That all changed last week when the Big Ten Conference canceled the fall football season because of the continued spread of COVID-19. Now, Fields, terribly desperate to get on the field and further prove his worth to the NFL, has started a move-on petition to get the Big Ten to change their minds. Already amassing more than 260,000 signatures, Fields is building on the We Want to Play hashtag, which college athletes used on Twitter to implore conference leaders not to cancel the 2020 season. So far, two of the Power Five conferences, the Pac-12 and, of course, the Big Ten, have done just that. In his petition, this is what Fields writes. We, the football players of the Big Ten, together with the fans and supporters of college football, request that the Big Ten Conference immediately reinstate the 2020 football season. Allow Big Ten players and teams to make their own choice as to whether they wish to play or opt out this fall season. Allow Big Ten players and teams who choose to opt out of playing a fall season to do so without penalty or repercussion. We want to play. We believe that safety protocols have been established and can be maintained to mitigate concerns of exposure to COVID-19. We believe that we should have the right to make decisions about what is best for our health and our future. Don't let our hard work and sacrifice be in vain. Let us play. Now, it's understandable why Fields is taking this step. He has a lucrative NFL future ahead of him, and losing a year could harm his development and prospects. His plea also speaks to the frustration that many college athletes feel over the fact that they do not have a say in what will happen this upcoming season. They have no players association, no seat at the table, and therefore no agency about this decision that will so thoroughly affect their lives. On one side of this fight are medical professionals and school presidents. On the other side are coaches, players, and many parents, some of whom are traveling to Big Ten headquarters to protest the decision. The doctors advising on this decision are focused on myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart muscle that can be an aftereffect of COVID-19. It was found to be present in five to 15 Big Ten athletes who contracted COVID-19 during the offseason. This is a rare and potentially deadly condition. It can kill you if the heart is subjected to strenuous exertion. Canceling the season will cost millions, if not billions of dollars, but the medical experts want out at least for the Big Ten. 
Meanwhile, this entire ordeal has exposed a reality that athletes understand all too well at the college level. They are not so-called student-athletes. They are minor league players taking their shot at the National Football League. Many have no problem if the entire campus is learning remotely if it means they get to play, even if that means carrying a risk that other students do not have to shoulder. That's just par for the course. Preventing them from taking the field is also preventing them from pursuing an opportunity to make the major league, something that only a minuscule fraction will actually achieve. The desire to get back on the field no matter the risk is understandable, because football itself holds the element of risk in every play. Just this week, the NFL celebrated the return of quarterback Alex Smith two years after he almost died and nearly lost his leg from a vicious hit during a game. It's been framed as an inspirational story with Smith saying, it's amazing to return to do something you love. Now players don't dwell on these dangers because if they did so, they might never walk onto the field. This is precisely why you need medical professionals to step in and assess the risks. It exposes the worst about college football that the other conferences that include schools already experiencing COVID breakouts as students return to campus have no centralized mechanism for shutting it all down and instead cherry pick the medical information they want to hear so they can keep the trains running. It's the Trumpian triumph of the negation of science and young people whose goal is to play by any means necessary will pay the price. Make no mistake about it. There is no college football for Ohio State for two reasons. One is because of the ways in which the Trump administration has mishandled the pandemic response at the cost of thousands of lives. The other is because this country, thanks to a bipartisan consensus forged over a generation, has no kind of social safety net to effectively keep people at home, save people's jobs, and keep businesses afloat until the worst is passed. If we obfuscate that truth, we lose clarity as to where the responsibility for this calamity lies, and we doom ourselves to never seeing it come under any semblance of control. You can feel for players like Justin Fields and still recognize this truth. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back. Now is part of the show that I call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. Stand up! This one's kind of unusual because there's so much to cherry pick from week to week in the WNBA and NBA bubble, uh, given the focus on social justice that's emerged from this space. But there's one thing I guess I want to speak about. Uh, LeBron James, he wore like a fake out Donald Trump MAGA hat that said, you know, it says make America great again. But instead of make America great again, it said make America and then great again was crossed out. And it said, arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor. 
That's fantastic because we cannot forget the name Breonna Taylor. We cannot forget what happened to her getting shot in her bed by police who still have not seen any semblance of punishment for this murder that they carried out against this woman. Um, And it's why it's become such a constant drumbeat and issue for people across this country. When are the police ever going to be arrested for the killing of Breonna Taylor? I'm so glad at LeBron putting the issue forward. And let's say their names who these police officers are. Uh, Jonathan Mattingly, Brett Hankinson, and Miles Cosgrove. They are the people who on March 13, 2020, shot Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old uh, emergency medical technician. Uh, unbelievable that uh, this even needs to be a constant demand to make this a reality. But that's the United States. Um, but the, the point I want to get across here is I hope it's not too petty, but I want to get this across, is that while I'm glad LeBron is speaking out on the issue, I'm not a big fan of the Trump MAGA hat fake out. I've seen those with other people's political hats too, but I feel like all that really does is draw attention to what is essentially what I think is the clanhood of the 2020 season is wearing those red hats. And so I, you know, it just, it gives me a twinge up my spine to see LeBron even wearing one. I mean, so, you know, maybe there's another way to do it. I don't know, but we have to keep calling for justice for Breonna Taylor. We have to keep saying the names of not just her name, but the names of the police officers, Jonathan Mattingly, Brett Hankinson, and Miles Cosgrove. But we also very definitely, I think, don't need to use uh, the iconography of what is um, a fascist movement and a fascist president. Um, So, yeah, that's what I got to say about that. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much to Ariana Smith for joining us. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigabu, for... uh, putting all this together mixing it and making it sound all right thank you to everybody out there listening during these perilous times wear your mask stay frosty we are out of here peace
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.